You are listening to a sermon preached at the First Christian Church of St. Ignatius in St. Ignatius, Montana. For more information, you can visit us at www.firstchristiansti.org. Good morning. Please turn to Job chapter 2. Job chapter 2. Now you might have recognized there the uh, offertory instrumental song was the same as last week. But I forgot to tell Elvin that uh, Linda wasn't going to be here last week. And so uh, we missed having the flute. How many of you missed the flute last week? Yeah. Yeah, we missed the flute last week. So, yeah, we did it again. That was on purpose. That was not an accident. All right. Let's see here. Uh, Now there's a question that all of us ask from time to time. Small children are often known to ask this question, question repeatedly, even when all the answers that can be given have been given. Behind this question, I think, is our desire to understand the world in which we live. Inquiring minds want to know, so they ask this question. Why? Yeah. The story is told of a preacher who had a little five-year-old daughter little girl noticed that when her dad stood behind the pulpit and was getting ready to preach, he would bow his head for a moment before he began his sermon. Week after week, the little girl watched her father do this. So one day, after the service, the little girl went to her dad and asked him, Why? Why do you bow your head right before you preach your sermon? Well, honey, the preacher answered, I'm asking the Lord to help me preach a good sermon. little girl looked up at her father and asked, Then why doesn't he? (laughs) <laughs> why indeed, yeah, why, why doesn't he? You can ask him that yourself. But anyway, when Cain's uh, sacrifice was not accepted by God, God asked Cain that question, why? Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? God asked that of Cain, not because God didn't know, but because he wanted Cain to understand. In Abraham's time, Pharaoh rightly wanted to know why. Abraham had presented Sarah as his sister instead of his wife. Pharaoh got in a lot of trouble over that with God, and and it could have been much worse. Naomi, from uh, the book of Ruth, Naomi asked the women of Bethlehem why they still called her Naomi instead of Mara, because the loss of her husband and her two sons had made her life bitter. And it's times like that It's times like that when we really want to know why. When life doesn't go as we think it ought to, we ask, why? When hard work goes unrewarded, we ask, why? When the wicked prosper, we ask, why? And when tragedy strikes, we ask, why? And in all those times... What we're really asking is, why God? Sure, we might ask other people about those things from time to time, but they don't have the answers any more than we do. And maybe you've taken your situation directly to God and you've, at some point or another in your life and you've asked Him, why? And maybe you've gotten answers for that, and maybe you haven't. Now, as we continue our study of Job, let's remind ourselves of his situation. He was a very wealthy man 
whose wealth had been taken away from him, all of it. He had ten children, all of whom had been killed. That all happened on the same day. In addition, he was stricken with some sort of disease that caused boils to appear on his body from the top of his head to the soles of his feet, and he didn't understand why. And so, especially as we look at chapter 3 of Job, it's just a little bit left in chapter 2, and then we're going to go on to chapter 3, we're going to see that Job asks God why, just like we do. Today's message is called, Why, God? We'll begin in Job chapter 2, verse 11. They're doing it again. That's crazy. It was working when I put it together last night. All right, I'll figure that out later. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, they came each one from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. And they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. When they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept. And each of them tore his robe, and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great. All right there. Now it's been said that good news travels fast, but bad news travels faster. We are accustomed to instant communication via phone or email, but in those days, news had to travel the old-fashioned way, word of mouth. Still, at some point, some of Job's friends, I hope it's only some of them, your, your Bibles say Job's three friends, let's hope it was three of Job's friends, but anyway, whatever. At some point, some of Job's friends heard what had happened to him, and they agreed together to visit Job. Now, the location of Teman, fairly well established, at least mostly, there's still some discussion about that, while the locations of Shua and Naama are debated. But it is probable that all three men had to travel a considerable distance, perhaps 100 miles or more, in order to come to Job. As we again consider the timing of the events of Job, we wonder, how long had Job suffered in his personal affliction by the time his friends arrived? Uh, how long he suffered total before his affliction was relieved? And we just don't know. Job chapter 7 verse 3 suggests that Job had been suffering for months by the time we get to that point in the book, which wouldn't have to be a long time from where we are this morning. Uh, the apocryphal book... The Testament of Job states that his suffering, in total, lasted for seven years. It's an apocryphal book. We're not going to take that as gospel. But whatever the case, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar have come to be with their friend Job. And, you know, in whatever time has passed, you can, whatever you think it was or whatever it actually was, in whatever time has passed before the three friends arrive, Job's illness has affected him so greatly that his friends don't recognize him, at least not from a distance. And that surprised them. So that tells us something about his appearance. Now, I, I guess, and this is pure speculation, it could have just been the first time that they had seen him without his beard. I say that because, okay, most of us know Rick back here in the corner. Okay, Rick Bondy back there in the corner. And uh, I, I point him out just in case any of you don't know Rick. But uh, that, that's our good friend, Rick Bondy there. I still remember the day that Rick showed up in my classroom at school after he shaved his beard off. How long ago was that, Rick? Got to be like 25 years or something. 
long time ago, okay? And I was, even then, I was accustomed to Rick with a beard. How many of you have ever known Rick without a beard? Other than, yeah, the few of us that were around at that point. For a brief time, Rick didn't have one. And I tell you what, he showed up in my classroom at the head of the stairs. I'm sitting there at my desk, and I look up. I don't know who this guy is. I really do not recognize him. I thought he was an insurance salesman or something. Anyway, <laughs> that was just Rick. Anyway, Job's friends don't recognize him. But they came there because they wanted to comfort Job. And they wanted to sympathize with him as he suffers. And that should have been a good thing. Now you know, probably already, from your own experience, in trying to comfort someone else in their suffering, it's not necessarily an easy task. And no matter what you do or don't do, you may not actually accomplish that. If you've ever been in the position of these three friends, you probably know how helpless they felt. They couldn't cure Job's disease. They couldn't restore his wealth. And they certainly couldn't bring his children back to him. So what could they do? Well, they gave visible signs of their sympathetic mourning. They tore their robes just as Job had done. They threw dust into the air over their heads. Uh, apparently didn't have ashes handy or something. I don't know, but this was another way of expressing that mourning. They lamented Job's situation audibly, and they wept. None of this, I don't think, was forced. You know, in the New Testament times, we, we see where uh, you could hire professional mourners to come. And they'd wail, and they'd cry, and they'd make all kinds of noise, and they'd, there'd be mourning going on to make sure somebody mourned, whoever it was who had passed. But it wasn't real. Now, that doesn't mean there wasn't anybody there for whom it was real. It probably were, but you could have people come and, and just do that without any substance. These, these men, I think, really cared about Job and his situation. And, you know, probably the most comforting, valuable thing that they did the entire time they were with Job was that they sat down with him in silence. Seven days and seven nights they sat with him in silence. None of this there, there stuff. They didn't, oh, pat him on the shoulder. Oh, there, there, Job's going to be okay. No, no. They, they, they understood, at least as much as they could at that point, the depth of his misery and despair. And they just sat down with him on the ground, yet another expression of mourning. And they sat with him in silence because they cared about their friend Job. And Job knew it. And that may have been the only thing they felt they could do at that point. It was probably the best thing they could do. Now, it doesn't last beyond the seven days. After Job starts speaking, these friends have their own ideas about Job's predicament, most of which conflict with Job's ideas about his predicament. We'll talk about those discussions later. But think for a second about how others have effectively comforted you. I'm assuming that's taken place. It has for me. And think for a second about how you, and I hope this is true also, how you at some point in your life have effectively comforted others. Words often prove inadequate, but being there is often what helps most. Just to know, this person is standing alongside me or sitting alongside me or being here with me because he or she cares about what I'm going through. And when you express that for somebody else, it makes a difference. No, it doesn't solve all their problems. That's not what they want you there for. 
They know you can't do that. But to be there with them and to help them is a good thing. As we come to chapter 3, I just want to preface it with this. Some have said that Job chapter 3 is the most depressing chapter in the entire Bible. I wouldn't dispute that. But I don't want us to get bogged down in that. We're going to ask some questions. We're going to look at some things. We're going to have some different ways of looking at it, I hope, that will help us deal with some things. As Job expresses his own despair, his own misery, I would be very surprised if most all of us here wouldn't identify in with Job's situation at least a little bit. Something we've been through, something we've experienced, some way that we've felt at some time in the past, or perhaps something that we're going through right now. And you might say, man, I get that. Well, hold on to that. Don't, don't let it drag you down, but hold on to that identification with what's going on here, because that means this is for you, and it's definitely for me. Let's go on to chapter 3, verse 1. Afterward, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was to be born, and the night which said, A boy is conceived. May that day be darkness. Let not God above care for it, nor light shine on it. Let darkness and black gloom claim it. Let a cloud settle on it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night... Let darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful shout enter it. Let those who, excuse me, let those curse it who curse the day, who are prepared to rouse Leviathan. Let the stars of its twilight be darkened. Let it wait for light. But have none, and let it not see the breaking dawn, because it did not shut the opening of my mother's womb or hide trouble from my eyes. As we start chapter 3, one thing strikes us immediately. It strikes me anyway. The last recorded time that Job spoke, at least seven days previous, perhaps more. It was to his wife, as he chastised her for suggesting that he curse God and die. No, we're not going to do that. He said she spoke as as one of the foolish women speaks. Instead, Job reasoned with her, saying, Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Now, we accept that back there in the beginning of chapter 2 when he said that. We, 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 We regard that statement as a strong statement of faith and as a testimony to the way that Job trusted in God. And if it was that, if that were the end of Job's expression about this whole thing, we come away saying, man, that Job, he's something else. I, I could never be, I could never experience that life like he did and, and not be affected by it like he wasn't affected by it. Because at that point, he doesn't seem to have been affected by it that deeply. But as chapter 3 begins, it's as though we are hearing from a different man altogether. One who curses the day of his birth and wishes that he had never been born. And perhaps... Perhaps this is a different man than the one we encountered before. This may not be the same Job. And and Job's friends may have come here thinking that they were going to encounter the, the man they always knew, and they may have encountered somebody else. Our experiences have the power to change us if we let them. That's true both good and bad. 
If Job's suffering has gone on for months already, if not longer, perhaps those days have taken their toll on Job's spirit as well as on his body. We mentioned last week he was probably in a state where he did not believe he would survive much longer. That's how bad this was for him. Job curses the day of his birth, but this is not a curse of profanity or obscenity. Job's curse is a condemnation. It's a declaration that the day he was born is a worthless day, having no value. This is his perspective now. As far as he was concerned, it should not be honored or remembered. We are reminded that each of his sons, it said, used to hold a feast on his day. We didn't know what that meant exactly, but possibly it referred to his, the, the son's birthday. It was during one of those feasts that all of Job's children were killed. Now, as Job breaks his silence, he curses the day of his own birth, wishing it had never happened. Maybe a connection, maybe not, but it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing. Now, Job is categorized as a book of poetry, as well as a book of wisdom, And Job expresses himself poetically as he calls for his birthday to be removed from the calendar. It's as though Job is saying that as time moves forward, that day should never exist. If you were going to try to be funny about this, you could say, well, that's why we don't have February 30th now, see, because that was Job's birthday. But that's, there's nothing funny about this. There's nothing funny about the intensity of Job's anguish here Job even calls for God himself to ignore the day on which he was born, as though that could somehow undo this situation in which Job finds himself. If God would just stop recognizing that day, everything would come to a halt, all this would stop, it'd be gone. And that's what Job wants. I mean, let's be honest. That's really what he wants. This isn't some, you know, made-up thing after the fact where he figured out how he was going to say all these words. This is an expression of despair and misery and agony. Very honest, very raw. And in several of these verses here, he expresses his desire that this day be abandoned to darkness. I mean, his own life has been engulfed now in darkness. And and though he wishes that the day of his birth remain in darkness, that the dawn would never have come on that day, underneath his expressions of anguish lies the question, why? Why is this happening to me, God? Why did you let the sun rise on the day I was born when things clearly would have been better if you hadn't? Now, Job has other questions as well, as we see as we go on here to verse 11. Just one note. um, You might be wondering about that thing in verse 8. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are prepared to rouse Leviathan. Apparently, the, uh, the prevalent opinion that I can find, at least, is that there were some in his time who engaged in, I think, what were occult type practices, which would have been very dark. And this idea of rousing Leviathan had something to do with somehow uh, with incantations uh, summoning the monster of the sea. Now, that's not to say that Job subscribed to that. That's not to say that Job participated in that. But he is expressing in his grief and, and suffering those who claim to have that kind of power, let them have that power over the day I was born. Okay? 
I kind of left that out because I didn't know if I was going to talk about it or not, and I just decided to just now because I thought maybe you were wondering why didn't he say anything about that. That's why I didn't say anything about that. Anyway, we'll go on to verse 11. Job continues, and he says, Why did I not die at birth? Come forth from the womb and expire. Why did the knees receive me, and why the breasts that I should suck? For now I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept then. I would have been at rest. With kings and with counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves. Or with princes who had gold, who were filling their houses with silver. Or like the miscarriage, which is discarded. I would not be as infants that never saw light. There, talking about the grave, there the wicked cease from raging. And there the weary are at rest. The prisoners are at ease together. They do not hear the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Look at verses 11 and 12 and 16. Given that the day of his birth would not really disappear from the calendar, Job shifts the question to himself. So that day dawned. Okay, that day dawned. The day of his birth came. And so he asked, why wasn't I allowed to die immediately rather than to live and to suffer so? And Job's suffering is terrible. We can understand the despair that he feels about the depth of his misery. And as one who's speaking thousands of years later, completely removed from Job's situation, never having a chance to actually speak to him or be with him in person about it, I have a liberty I can take here. I I would like to ask a question about that. And this is as much for me as it is for anyone. If, when the bad times come, we are going to ask the question... Why was I allowed to live and to suffer so? Then when the good times come, shouldn't we ask the question, why was I allowed to live and to benefit so? Why do we believe that we inherently deserve blessing and ease rather than suffering and pain? Why do we think that's what our lives should be like? Life should be blessing and ease. Shouldn't have suffering and pain. Why do we assume that? As we saw last week and again earlier today, Job asked that question. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? He was there, but now, at the point we find him here in chapter 3, he seems to have abandoned that line of reasoning, at least for the time being, declaring that if only he'd been allowed to die on the day he was born, then life would be worth living. And yes, I said it that way intentionally. You're going to have to think about that for a little bit. If only he'd been allowed to die on the day he was born, then life would be worth living. Now, I've mentioned before, this is about verses 14, 15, and 19. I've mentioned before that our family liked the National Treasure movies. I think I mentioned before that in the second movie, uh, there's a clue given that is part of a series of clues that leads to the incredible treasure and the mostly happy ending. Okay, that's what the movies are all about. But the clue is... The debt that all men pay. And of course, the answer, if you've seen the movie, you know, probably even if you haven't seen the movie, you know the answer to this. The debt that all men pay, the answer is death. Job says that kings, counselors, princes, and all men, both small and great, eventually die. True. His reasoning is that since this is true, why wasn't he allowed to die before he suffered, or really before he lived at all? For Job, that now seems preferable 
to his having to, to having prosperity and blessing if life is also going to include nearly unbearable suffering. He's reached that point where he says, if, this, if life is going to be like this as well, I would prefer never to have survived, to experience either prosperity and blessing or suffering. Verses 17 through 19, we see that that seems to be what motivates Job's lament here. According to Job, the wicked, the weary, the prisoner, the slave, they are all freed by death. Had he simply been allowed to die at birth, he could have avoided all this suffering. And right now, he seems to think that that is preferable to his entire life. Now, I don't want to be too hard on Job. He's going through things I've never been through, and I hope never to go through, and I hope none of you ever have to go through. But isn't his expression here just a little selfish? Think about this aspect of what he's experiencing. Part of Job's agony is over the loss of his ten children. So, what about Job's own parents? Job's sitting here wishing so desperately that he died on the day of his birth. Wouldn't his own parents have suffered in similar fashion? Can we hope, it raises the question, can we hope for a cessation to our own suffering if it only transfers the suffering to somebody else? I think we have to think about that when it comes to handling the suffering that we encounter. Let's go on to verse 20. Job continues as we finish the chapter here. Why is light given to him who suffers, and life to the bitter of soul, who long for death, but there is none, and dig for it more than for hidden treasure, who rejoice greatly and exult when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden and whom God has hedged in? For my groaning comes at the sight of my food, and my cries pour out like water. For what I fear comes upon me. Literally, the fear that I fear comes upon me. And what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. And I am not at rest, but turmoil comes. Now Job now asks the question with which many people struggle even today. You'll hear it often, I think. Why does God allow suffering? Lee Strobel, noted Christian author of books such as The Case for Christ and The Case for a Creator, said in 2012 that a few years before that he had commissioned a national survey in which uh, people were asked the, what question they would ask if they could ask God only one thing. Okay, that was, that was the, I think, the extent of the survey. If you could ask God one question, what would it be? Number one answer? Why is there suffering in the world? It's a, question, it's a question that's on people's minds. It's probably crossed your mind. And it was certainly on Job's mind. But Job asked a much more pointed question. If in the midst of suffering, I would rather be dead, why doesn't God allow that? Now it's important to note, I think, that Job is not desiring or advocating suicide. That's not what this is about. But if death would be, in the eyes of Job, is how he looks at it right here, if death would be merciful compared to the suffering of a person's life, then why doesn't God allow the person to die and to escape the suffering? Uh, the complementary question, one that is 
also frequently asked is, why do some people die when they're not suffering earlier than what we would think is proper? Those two things go together. Two very, difficult to question, two very difficult questions. When we consider them together, it seems that we have defined life to be worth living only when it is pleasant. And Job seems to have defined his life that way as well. Along with that, Job asks another question. He says, why is there unexplained suffering? Because, you know, sometimes we know the source. We know what happened. And we think that that changes things. In the coming chapters, Job's friends will attempt to explain Job's suffering in ways with which Job will strongly disagree. Job says in verse 23, though, Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden and whom God has hedged in? Can't see, doesn't understand, doesn't know why this is happening. You know, Satan had accused God of placing a hedge of protection around Job and his possessions. Job accuses God of placing a hedge of confinement around him so that he is oppressed without understanding why he is oppressed. And here's the thing. If you, if, <laughs> if I, as I started this message this morning and gave you the topic and told you some of the things that I, I said we were going to talk about, and you thought, well, he, I, he's going to talk about all these things, he must have answers. Uh, no. I, I don't have answers for all the questions that Job raises, but I have a couple observations about this one. Do you really suffer less if you understand why you're suffering? You think you do. You might process it differently, but is your suffering genuinely less? I'm not talking about when I smashed my thumb with a hammer the other day, okay? I mean, if I had just woken up one morning, my thumb looked like this with the purple marks under the nail and, you know, swollen and, and everything, and I'd wonder, yeah, that's weird. Where did that come from? I would probably worry more, but would I actually suffer pain more? I know exactly how I did that. I smacked it with a hammer. You don't want to hear this because it's stupid. Twice, okay? Yeah, yeah. Don't go there. Don't go there. If God had explained to Job about the conversations that God had with Satan, would Job have then said, oh, well, that's okay, then I'll just keep suffering quietly over here? I don't think so. And then there's another question that I have. Is it sometimes better for us if our suffering is unexplained? And I think the answer is yes. I think it has to be yes. Instead of being like children, having to have an answer for everything... For us, knowing that some things simply don't have an answer, at least not one that we're going to have access to, should lead us to rely fully on God as the one in whom we trust and from whom we draw our strength. Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 7 and 8. says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, and whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. You heard that. Heat, drought, suffering. Doesn't mean we'll never suffer if we trust in God. It means that we'll be able to handle our suffering if we trust in God. You know, if suffering were always explained... I think we would be more likely to try to convince ourselves that we can get through the suffering by our own strength. I can do this. Then, instead of relying on God and trusting in Him 
for his strength, which is where we really need to be, whether we understand what we're going through or not. I don't care if you think you can get through it on your own. Wouldn't you rather get through it with God? I would. Uh, The last two verses here, at the end of chapter 3, Job expresses the common concern that life isn't turning out the way that he thought it would. Everything was so right, and now everything has gone so wrong. And can that really be the way life is supposed to be? The man named George Herbert, Englishman, he was a priest and a poet, born in 1593. He died of tuberculosis in 1633, just short of his 40th birthday. Sometime during his life, he wrote a poem called The Pilgrimage, which tells of a man's journey through life and the dangers and temptations he faces along the way. At one point in the poem, the man reaches the place that he believed to be the place of success, which Herbert called in the poem The Gladsome Hill. Here's what Herbert wrote about that. After having gone through the rest of his life in the poem, the man uh, encounters this. Here's what Herbert wrote. At length I got unto the gladsome hill, where lay my hope, where lay my heart, and climbing still, when I had gained the brow and top, a lake of brackish waters on the ground was all I found. With that abashed, and struck with many a sting of swarming fears, I fell and cried, Alas, my king, can both the way and end be tears? Herbert was talking about the disappointment of worldly success, but the question applies equally well to the problem of a life that involves suffering. Can, or maybe better should, both the way of our lives and the end be tears? Yeah, I'm not ready for that. Even after what must have been many years of pleasure... Job seems to have lost the desire to live. I think he's expressed that pretty clearly. Wishing that the day of his birth had never arrived, or that his life had ended as soon as it had begun. He questions why God allows suffering when death seems to him at least to be preferable. He questions why the reasons for suffering aren't explained. And he confesses that his worst fears have been realized as he wonders whether this is how life is supposed to be. And I'd say... That in his expression of suffering, at least, maybe not in every perspective that he has on it, maybe not in the way that he's expressing himself, but in his expressing these ideas, he's in pretty good company. Even Jesus asked why on the cross. While he was on the cross, Jesus quoted from Psalm chapter 22, verse 1, when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the suffering of Jesus on the cross, even at other times in his life, was very real. Just as Job's suffering was very real, and just as your suffering, or my suffering, is very real. So what do we say about suffering? Is there any hope? Is there anything that can help us when we are suffering? Lee Strobel, the author that I mentioned earlier, gives what he calls five points of light to help us handle suffering. And they're all here. My program not working again inexplicably, but we'll get back to that. At least the projector's working for now. Um, But here they all are. I'll go through them one at a time. First of all, God is not the creator of evil and suffering. People sometimes ask, 
Why didn't God create a perfect world in which there is no suffering? And the answer is he did. He did. But through Satan's influence and man's choice, sin entered the world. And along with sin came suffering and death. Knowing that God is not the origin of these things can help us remember that God is the source of every good and perfect gift and that he can supply those good and perfect gifts even to people who are suffering. His way, his timing, his measure, but he can supply those good and perfect gifts even to people who are suffering. Strobel's second point of light here is though suffering isn't good, God can use it to accomplish good. We all know the story of Joseph, sold into slavery by his brothers, falsely accused and imprisoned, and yet God used those events to bring about the preservation of the sons of Israel, the establishment of the Israelites as a mighty nation. Joseph himself told his brothers, what you intended for evil, God has meant for good. God may have less grandiose plans for how he will use your suffering to accomplish good, but know that he can Use your suffering to bring good things about. Strobel's third point of light is, The day is coming when suffering will cease and God will judge evil. Some people wonder that since there is evil in the world, is God somehow incapable of overcoming it? The answer is that God is absolutely capable of overcoming evil, but He will do so in His own time. Now sometimes He limits the expression of evil, sometimes he overcomes evil in a, in a temporary, local way, but evil still exists in the world. And some people really struggle with that. But the time when God will completely overcome evil, every, uh, everything that is contrary to God's desire will be overcome is when Christ returns. The present heaven, the present earth will pass away. A new heaven, a new earth will be established. And there will be no suffering for God's people in eternity. The fourth point of light, Strobel states, he says, our our present suffering pales in comparison to future blessing. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Romans 8.18, he said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He also said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, that what he called momentary light affliction, the sufferings of this life, is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Well, the point to remember there is that suffering is temporary. Life without suffering in heaven with Jesus is eternal. Finally, Strobel's fifth point of light is we decide whether to turn bitter or to turn to God for peace and courage. When we studied John's Gospel, we read in, in John 16.33, In the world you have tribulation. Okay, We, we talked about that. And if that were all that verse said, we might well despair in the face of suffering like Job did. But there's more. The entire verse, John 16, 33, reads like this. These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. That's where our choice comes from. Job had the choice. To believe that God was ultimately sovereign, even in the middle of his suffering, and to place himself in God's hands, come what may. 
Our choice today is much the same. Except that in the church age in which we live, following Acts chapter 2 in the New Testament, clear up until the time Christ returns, we are directed to put our faith in Jesus Christ. Then, even in the middle of our suffering, we can have peace because Christ has overcome the world. Not a cessation of suffering in the world, a cessation of suffering in eternity. Yes, now, maybe not. But peace, even in the middle of our suffering. If you're a Christian who has struggled with suffering, and I know, I know, some of you have, at least I know some of the struggles you have. I bet all of you have. All of you Christians have struggled with suffering one way or another. But I know some of your struggles. If you're a Christian who has struggled with suffering, I want to encourage you. Maybe you're struggling now. Even though God may not take your suffering away, or he may not take it away completely, or he may not take it away for a time, when you rely on Jesus instead of relying on yourself, you can have peace even in the middle of your suffering. And you can keep looking forward to the day when all of your suffering will cease as you begin eternity with Jesus. And if you're not a Christian today, I would ask you, where is your hope in the middle of suffering? Because suffering is not exclusive to Christians. Where is your hope in the middle of your suffering? What will you do if and when your strength proves to be inadequate to handle whatever suffering you experience? When Christ comes, will your suffering end because he is your Lord and Savior? Or will your suffering become permanent because you never trusted in Jesus, in his death, burial, and resurrection for your salvation? Being able to handle Suffering now and being free from suffering in eternity are just two of the benefits that you will receive if you are willing to accept Jesus Christ in faith, repenting of your sins, confessing your faith to others, and being immersed into him for the forgiveness of your sins, receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you want Jesus to be in control of your life, whether you are suffering or not, please come forward as we stand and sing our invitation song.